Welcome to this, the June edition of DC Policy Update. I'm Jim Allen, your host on these brief trips down advocacy lane in Washington, DC. Now, it's been a while since our last podcast. Let's just put it this way. It hasn't been for a lack of material. But let me begin with an update on some of that material that we've been talking about in our last update back in February, specifically the discussion about mortgage market reform. Now, just a brief summary. It started off as Corker, in the Corker-Warner bill. Uh, it was a bipartisan effort signed on by an equal number of Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, a rare sort of bipartisan effort in that House. And it was essentially designed to try to deal with the issue of Fannie and Freddie. Back in 2009, when we'd surveyed our members, this was something that we felt needed, the members felt needed to be taken care of and was overlooked when Dodd-Frank was signed into law back in 2010. Now, Corker Warner essentially would create a federal mortgage insurance corporation that would guarantee, provide guarantees to qualified mortgages. And it was a way of sort of pushing out to pasture Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And in fact, the, uh, there was a provision in there that the General Accountability Office of the federal government would consider in about seven or eight years whether or not Fannie and Freddie should be actually be shuttered. Now that bill sort of morphed into what has been what has been known since then as Johnson Crapo, named after Senator Johnson, uh, who is the majority leader in in the Senate, and Senator Crapo from Idaho is the uh, who is the uh, ranking Republican in the Senate uh, Banking Committee. This was was known as sort of the leadership bill, and it was, to their credit, they relied quite heavily upon the original Corker-Warner bill. Just as it came out, right when the bill was at its zenith in support, bipartisan support in the Senate, it died. Why did it die? Well, that's a very good question, and you get into inside politics in Washington, D.C., but I'll try to briefly summarize. Essentially what happened was the parties that were wedded to the status quo had joined forces and they now had something to point at and criticize. Essentially these were the hedge funds who had purchased the, um, sh the preferred stock of Fannie and Freddie and they'd purchased these things, these shares at pennies on the dollar from some of the small banks that were cajoled by the by uh, banking regulators into buying these preferred shares back in 2007-2008, just at the time that Fannie and Freddie were kind of becoming a little shaky. Um, there were, among the other groups, were the small banks who felt that um, uh, not only those that continued to hold the preferred shares, but also those that uh, felt that the Johnson Crapo gave too much deference to the big banks at their expense. It looked that they were essentially complaining that this was going to be something that was going to exacerbate the disparities between big banks and Main Street banks. There were also the usual suspects in the building industry or the housing industry of the home builders, realtors, uh, affording housing act, affordable housing ad advocates all lining up against Johnson Crapo. And ultimately what they did was they were able to delay it. And once there was a delay, that indicated weakness uh, in the Senate. They sort of redoubled their efforts 
And that weakness ended up sort of encouraging defeat. And ultimately, the bill has been uh, more or less shuttered in, in the Congress uh, this year. Even if it had passed the Senate, whether it was going to pass the House was another question, but we won't even get to see, um, see how that was going to happen. Ultimately, this sort of reinforces what uh, we'd been hearing from some uh, parties in Washington, D.C. There was someone who had remarked, I'm here I'm sort of relaying this third hand, but that uh, their goal was to ensure that the only things that changed at the headquarters of Fannie and Freddie were the curtains and maybe the names on the outside of the buildings. And as one of our co-members, one of our CFA members from the Midwest had, uh, uh, had mentioned to me a couple of a week or so ago, this looks like a crisis that we're, that we're going to have to relive before we actually get it, uh, get it fixed and get it fixed right. So, on to some of the other things that are going on in Washington, D.C. Um, the SEC came out with a proposal uh, back couple months ago was called Standards for Covered Clearing Agencies. What they were trying to do was set some high-level standards for stock-based derivatives markets and specifically the clearing operations. Now, if you think back to 2007-2008, many of the critics of the crisis saw the over-the-counter derivatives markets as a systemic problem. You know, you're looking at instruments that are complex. The size of the market was, was massive. I think, in fact, most recently, I think that uh, the Office of Comptroller Currency, who tracks this stuff for the, for the big banks, um, pointed out that the over-the-counter market, notional value of the no over-the-counter market was $200 trillion. By comparison, the exchange-traded futures market was $50 trillion notional. So the size of the market was another thing. There was a lack of transparency about these instruments and about the people who were playing in it. There was also the issue of AIG, the big insurer. Um, we'd been sort of told by uh, some of the people, the insiders in the, in the derivative sector, that AIG was one of those firms that was out there constantly sort of, they were sort of big players in the um, in the uh, credit default swaps market, specifically as related to some of the uh, mortgage-backed securities offerings, uh, specifically of, once again, Fannie and Freddie. And uh, because they were AAA rated and seen as a well-known and, and well-respected uh, insurance firm, uh, they were essentially given a pass on putting up uh, margin and collateral on their trades with the assumption that basically the insurance side was going to take care of it. And as we found out, that didn't quite take place. Um, the other part of it was, of course, that the banks were the, oftentimes the central counterparties in the over-the-counter markets here too, which put um, the insured deposits at risk. Now, the Dodd-Frank response to this was to centrally put all these over-the-counter instruments through the central, central clearing houses. Uh, specifically the central clearing houses of the uh, established uh, futures, futures exchanges. Now this is logical given that those clearing firms uh, had been solid fixtures in exchange-traded derivatives. 
they had uh, weathered a number of significant storms over the past decade or so and without much in the way of difficulty. Um, they'd always been able to sort of steer, steer through even, you know, 2008. But the clearing firms themselves were not necessarily in favor of, of being given this uh, 200 trillion notional amount, uh, 200 trillion dollar notional amount uh, market. And specifically, they were concerned about the complexity of the instruments. Each instrument is unique, and oftentimes what you find are two parties that have specific interests that they're able to negotiate a trade for, but trying to trade those, trying to price those, trying to margin those kinds of contracts was was going to be, we saw as being very difficult to actually accomplish. If you think about it, if they were too cautious in the manner in which they, in which they margined and uh, collateralized these things, the markets were going to become too expensive and therefore you increase the risk in the real economy. If they were too aggressive in the way they priced and margined uh, these instruments, then it was going to create some real sig significant uh, risk to the financial system. So you had to had to wed this really fine line and uh, you know to their to their credit the clearing firms were somewhat concerned that they weren't going to be able to do that. And given the size of the of the potential market here, putting all these instruments together uh, into you know just a few very large clearing houses would create systemically important financial institutions that dwarfed uh, some of the other sort of banking institutions that are out there. So we started to see some, uh, some concern out there. Um, uh, you know, some of the large investment firms started to say they were going to monitor these clearing agencies and maybe not deal with some because they were concerned about the risks. So in our response to the SEC, essentially we made the point that the proposals that they were making with regard to um, clearing agencies were all prudent. They were good. They were they were on the right track. We, you know, we might have suggested some tweaks here and there, but the concern that we had was that these that these prudent measures were not necessarily going to be able to handle some of the significant risk, risks of these central counterparties, and we suggested that um, the SEC, as well as some of the other large financial regulators engage in some careful consideration about the central clearing requirement once again. Um, ultimately, I think we, we will likely or we may move toward um, you know, supporting a, a structure that centrally clears standardized instruments, centrally reports all trades, but permits sort of the bilateral clearing uh, through these intermediaries of these really bespoke, unique uh, contracts that uh, companies get engage in between or create between each other. And the final thing I wanted to mention today, uh, rating agency uh, reform has sort of come back to the fore. Uh, there was a recent investors panel at uh, Treasury Department specifically on this. We did a, uh, in, uh, at the same time, we sort of did a survey revisiting this issue. We did one back in uh, 2009. Uh, when 60% of the members said that uh, they doubted the validity of the credit ratings. Fortunately, they are um, somewhat more 
to positively disposed to how the credit rating agencies are doing. More than 60% say that uh, they've actually uh, the rating agencies and the ratings have actually improved. They say it's not necessarily because of the regulations put into place and under Dodd-Frank, uh, but it's more because of their survival instinct. That being said, still more than 80% of the members said they are much more cautious today in their use of credit ratings than they were back in 2007, uh, in large part because uh, many still believe or con are concerned that the rating agencies remain under pressure from the issuers with regard to their ratings. Now, we looked at also, asked them also about some of the potential regulatory changes that might still be out there. Just over half, 52%, said... Uh, uh, one important thing that needs to be considered taken on is uh, the issuer pays model where the, um, the issuer of the, of the uh, securities pays the rating agency and, the, and the, this was a concern because of the conflicts of interest that, that creates. A similar percentage said they need to have, um, that there should be more transparency on the ratings methodologies. Just 13% though, um, thought that an assigned ratings, mo ratings model, where the, essentially the SEC um, licenses a number of rating agencies and then determines, you know, just sort of pulls out of the hat who's going to rate what issues, um, basically 13% said that that was an appropriate model. So uh, not very much support there. Now, by comparison, we asked the question, which CRA business model would have the fewest or, shall we say, the least problematic conflicts of interest? The option that garnered the most support in this case was 60% said that all CRA credit rating agency business models are rife with conflicts. What's needed is to disclose those conflicts to investors and then let investors decide whether to use them. Now, this is very much in... in keeping with the positions that we have taken over the years to, um, which is supporting some of the steps to eliminate mandates within statute and within regulations to use credit ratings. We felt that those, those mandates gave credit ratings a captive market and enabled them to benefit uh, from their ratings regardless of the quality. Uh, by doing away with those mandates, they were going to have to compete in a broader market. You'd have a better chance of them actually improving the quality of the ratings. At the same time, we also support the need for firms to rely upon ratings if they wish to, if they deem those ratings relevant and re reliable and convey that message to their clients, and thereby putting sort of the onus and the responsibility upon the investment firms to decide whether or not uh, the ratings were should be used or not. And uh, I think that is in case in many cases what is happening. People are starting to use them. Uh, they're, they're not relying upon them, but they're using them as just another factor in the, in the whole process of, of investment decisions. We've also over the years also said that uh, rating agencies should not rate new structures until there's sufficient data for a defensible rating. Uh, say that uh, the rating agencies should have an executive level compliance officer to manage their conflicts of interest, that they should have separate teams for the initial and then the ongoing ratings and rotate those rating teams uh, across different issuers. And then uh, finally, too, that they should have, some, have different ratings to distinguish between traditional debt and other structured instruments. So that's all from the policy front.
Uh, on a personal note, I would like to say, I think we, we want to say goodbye and bon chance to a colleague, Jamie Underwood, who is leaving uh, tomorrow for bigger professional en endeavors. Uh, Jamie has been a key part of these podcasts, not to mention other marketing efforts for the Standards Financial Markets Integrity team. And we will certainly miss her and we wish her well. And finally, if you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please email us at advocacy at cfainstitute.org. And don't forget to visit our Market Integrities blog early and often at blogs.cfainstitute.org slash forward slash Market Integrity. And follow us on Twitter at Market Integrity. Thank you, and we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Copyright 2014 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.